Sarah Marie Weeb is an assistant professor in the School of Public Administration at the University of Victoria and an adjunct professor at the University of Hawaii Manoa with a focus on community development and environmental sustainability. She's a co-founder of the Feminist Environmental Research Network and a prolific writer. Her books include Everyday Exposure, Indigenous Mobilization and Environmental Justice in Canada's Chemical Valley, Biopolitical Disaster, Creating Spaces of Engagement, Policy Justice and the Practical Craft of Deliberative Democracy, Life Against States of Emergency, and very soon the book Hot Mess, Becoming a Mother During a Code Red Climate Emergency, which is set to come out from Fernwood Press in the near future. I wanted to talk to Sarah about what she calls the points of connection between emotive or narrative forms of communication and the work of policy transformation. There's a point in this conversation where she admits that she's still searching for examples of this sort of activity in her work. She's clearly thrilled when she finds it, but it's difficult to locate because usually we expect any sort of policy making or deliberative process to be a cold calculating thing, a means through which we reach consensus by rationally looking at all the data. But what can we make out of moments where the data of human experience radically exceeds these sorts of colonial logics or expectations that go into making policy? Sarah has a lot of faith in the power of arts-based strategies of policy transformation and of affirming life against states of emergency. Part of the point, I think, is to convert anxiety into anger, despair into dedication, and the typically transactive parts of treaty relations into something far more transformative or maybe iterative. What I really appreciate about the way that Sarah thinks through difficult problems is that she's a settler scholar who doesn't think it's acceptable for communicators to reduce the lives of indigenous peoples to crisis. She realizes that there's power and import involved in naming and declaring an emergency but grasps how focusing exclusively on crisis misrepresents and misunderstands the autonomy and vitality of indigenous communities. So the point in some ways is to identify and critique all of the colonial constraints, the siloed bureaucracies, the stunting forms of education, the rapacious greed that limits the flourishing of such communities. She describes this conundrum in terms of the paradox of emergency, or the paradox of locating democracy and democratic values in the context of emergency. It's hard when a crisis hits to think about politics, but crises are inherently political, and the forms of expression that are licit or legible at the inception and in the perpetuation of crisis matter because they get to determine our response. The first question I wanted to ask you comes from my reading of your book, Life Against States of Emergency. Um, you know, it's, it's a really powerful book. And I think it's because of the way that you emphasize like a commitment to anti-colonial social justice and ethics. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I think often about this sort of uh, ceremony that recently was contested here in Halifax around you know the the mace the ceremonial mace which you you talk about in the book uh, and it really stood out like you talk about how in the ontario parliamentary tradition 
the sergeant at arms parades the mace into the chamber to open the session and convene democratic deliberation. And I just sort of hadn't thought about this seemingly innocuous gesture. Um, But you point out that like the mace tells us something about the persistence of Canada's imperial past and how it informs our patriarchal colonial present. And also about how power is, as you put it, simultaneously brutal and banal. Um, So, you know, I, I thought it might be an interesting place to start. The mace is a symbolic object, but you're kind of encouraging us to think harder uh, about what it's symbolic of and about what the object is made out of. Like, could you describe where the jewels on Ontario's mace come from and why it matters, like, and how it maybe registers differently for people in, for example, uh, Ottawapiskat and Treaty 9 territory? Yeah. Oh, I appreciate your uptake on that part of the book. Um, I remember writing about it and then sharing drafts with colleagues, former colleagues at the University of Hawaii, and they were like, what is a mace? They were so blown away Mm. by this weird sort of symbolic artifact that we still use with Mm -hmm. pride in Canada. And I think it's that that pride that I really want to problematize in terms of this sort of glorification of something that might seem so simple, like the mace is this traditional artifact that we use from the British parliamentary system. And it's, you know, paraded into every legislative assembly across Canada to open the um, democratic session for a debate. And it's supposed to symbolize democracy and collegiality, but it is this weapon, this medieval weapon that was used to to bludgeon one's enemy. And what makes it even further troubling in the context of the Ontario Assembly at Queen's Park is the, again, the enthusiasm with it, in which this artifact is kind of portrayed. So there's this um, foyer at Queen's Park where you can go and look at the uh, mace when um, Parliament's not in session and there's some information about it, um, which includes that some of the, the diamonds were mined in um, Attawapiskat traditional territory, so in Treaty 9 territory. So these are De Beers mines, uh, mined diamonds. And so for me, just a lot of, I guess, symbols and discourses and images collide in this one object where we look at this sort of paradox of Parliament um, this um, sort of paradox of collegial democratic deliberation. And it reminds us of, you know, how far we have to go still, I think, towards recognizing and revitalizing treaty rights in Canada, because this is such a, you know, a violent object that's sort of hidden in plain sight in many ways. It's, you know, projected, it's paraded, it's this kind of performative object. Um, but underneath it, underneath these sort of sparkling diamonds, there is a lot of, of violence there in terms of the extraction of these resources, often without a lot of genuine consent. And I say that because I know that these agreements, like impact benefit agreements, are often negotiated you know, privately. But again and again, Opiscat has tried to reopen their impact benefit agreement um, with De Beers. And of course, the, the mind is closed now. Uh, the mine is closed, but um, there's a lot of examples of the community trying to reopen that conversation and, and just the challenges that they faced um, really bring into focus uh, Canada's continuous struggle over resources and that kind of lack of recognition of Indigenous 
rights and treaties and these ongoing struggles. Yeah, and you and you you know provide up to date information in the book about how like De Beers plans to repurpose it as a dump site, um, but it remains you say Treaty Nine territory remains a site of contestation in connection with proposed large scale mining, most notably uh, via of course um, Ring of Fire mining uh, and proposed development. Um, so it's like it's all kind of. It comes out of a close reading in a way of like the history of this object um, and all of the events that it kind of uh, summons and obscures. And yeah, so there's there's a lot going on in the book. And, you know, I wanted to kind of highlight another, I think, really moving passage where you talk about finishing the book while pregnant and 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 while confronting um like the spread of uncontrolled wildfires throughout the U.S. and British Columbia, um, you ask yourself and the reader the questions, what does it mean to bring a new being into such a turbulent world? And what kind of radically alternative conceivable futures would be possible and just for your first child um, and for future generations, more broadly speaking? Um, You also ask like a very heartfelt but I think kind of pained question later on in the book, how do we nurture playfulness, joy, and humor in the face of emergencies? Um, I wonder if these are questions that you still ask yourself and your work and your life, given that, you know, at this point, over 12 million hectares, 12 million hectares of land have been incinerated this year in so-called Canada. And it feels as though we are now at the point of cascading climate impacts that are going to be unstoppable without radically alternative futures coming into being. You know, how are you coping? How are you still nurturing playfulness and joy? And like, do you engage with this reality when you talk to your children, for example? Yeah, there's so much in there. And the, um, conclusion or afterward to life against states of emergency um, definitely is something that I've been thinking about a lot in the wake of these kind of layered crises. Um, When I was finishing up the writing, I had just suddenly relocated from the U.S. back to Canada. Um, There was a global pandemic. Um, Then there was the heat dome in 2021. Uh, And then I was um, pregnant with my first child. So I was definitely thinking about and feeling in a really embodied, visceral way, these layered crises all happening at the same time. And um, one thing I wanted to add as well is that, um, you know, I mentioned De Beers earlier, but then also the next, I think, large contentious issue around kind of extraction and um, a natural resource conflict and management in, in the North will be around the ring of fire um, and looking at kind of the extraction of, elements and minerals for things like um, electric vehicles, for instance, I think that will be a really important area to watch moving forward and how that plays out in terms of these struggles and respect for Indigenous treaty relations. Um, but certainly all of this does influence my current thinking and writing. And actually, I'm working on a book that um, I started when I was on maternity leave and I had a difficult 
pregnancy a difficult birth, but a pretty good kid who slept really well. So that meant I had long nap time to at least put down a few thoughts. And I'm kind of like that as a writer. I often write through pain to process the world. And Mm -hmm. so the book I'm writing now is called Hot Mess, Becoming a Mother During a Code Red Climate Emergency. And I'll be taking up a few of these themes. Um, But I really appreciate what you mentioned before about the joy and the community and how we kind of come together during these times of crisis. Um, So I started writing that book and and then I was approached actually by um, local planners here in the city of Victoria, so within the Capital Regional District, to um, take on a project about extreme heat exposure. So that's been the main project that I've been working on um, really locally here to right where I live. And uh, so we set that up trying to um, communicate with some of the more vulnerable groups to extreme heat. So seniors, pregnant women, um, newcomers, for instance. And I was actually just reviewing some of our conversations with those groups before the call and um, what came up for many of the, the women in particular who were talking about being pregnant or nursing during the heat dome Um, was just how there was this layering of crises. So there was this feeling of, you know, insecurity and nervousness around becoming a new parent, but then also um, the stress of, you know, this lack of communication or information about, you know, what to do during a heat dome. Um, And then also a lot of mental health concerns. So that that came up again and again, actually, in, in our survey that we did. And then also... Um, in these sharing circles. So it is something that has affected the work that I do now, which is taking a more kind of local approach and really trying to look here within the city of Victoria and then the surrounding regions in terms of how can we communicate better? How can we prepare? Mm -hmm. How can we ensure that those at the margins um, are, you know, heard, their voices are heard and that their solutions can inform policy and planning moving forward. So mm-hmm. I'm actively doing that research now. And so that certainly hits, yeah, hits close to home as I feel like this kind of state of emergency now is something very embodied and, and felt for me in a way that I hadn't really, um, really connected with before in the mm-hmm. same way. Yeah, it's like, it really is um, an overwhelmingly big, I think, uh, question like it, it, and one that straddles all different sorts of kind of you know, ways of being in schools of thought, like, how do you, like the question you asked, like, how do you decide to bring a new being into this world? Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it, it was perhaps never a thing that people did uh, um, sort of without some degree of ambivalence, I guess, but especially in a world like this one, right? Where the future is so uncertain. Um, yeah. It feels it feels incredibly timely to be engaging with these questions, um, and and just a lot. It sounds like a lot, um, but uh, you know, there's the, and there is like a, a ton of anxiety. I think right now, especially around the disastrous effects of wildfires, that is, you know, um, constantly you know bombarding us. If you're not seeing it directly, you're seeing it mediated. Um, and it, you know, it also emerges in your book, Biopolitical Disaster, which you co-edited with Jennifer Lawrence. The book starts with a description of, as you put it, the climate change fueled megafires in Fort McMurray in 2016. 
and the displacement of 80,000 climate refugees from the oil sand city. In Life Against States of Emergency, one of the first mentions of its sort of central figure, uh, Chief Teresa Spence, includes a discussion of the climate disasters of 2011 that forced 1,400 residents of Lake St. Martin First Nations uh, First Nation to flee. Uh, you know, that was a flood. Um, we just had like, um, you know, unprecedented flooding in Nova Scotia here. Um, three months of rain over the course of 24 hours. Um, you know, people died. And, you know, in the wake of these kinds of disasters, um, there's a choice. You know, the choice is between, I think, business as usual and forgetting despair or mobilization. And you talk about how in the wake of that displacement, Spence started her mobilization. And, you know, why, I guess, did you want to remember uh, or remind people of Spence's self-sacrifice, her her fast as, as a, quote, powerful and regenerative force? And why do you think this story of insisting upon the flourishing lives of Indigenous peoples needs to be told right now? Yeah, I found myself so glued to the coverage of what was framed largely as a hunger strike in 2012 and 2013. And I just couldn't peel away. And I was so troubled by a lot of that coverage, most of the kind of Western kind of mainstream media coverage, which um, was really disparaging and highlighted, you know, these horrible quotes from different public officials talking about how, you know, she didn't look like she was in a hunger strike. It was it was pretty terrible. And then also there was at the time this debate around accountability and financial management. And and I just really noticed how Canadians, kind of broadly speaking, were sidestepping the the core concern that Teresa Spence kept calling attention to over and over again, which is, you know, what does it mean to be in a treaty relationship today? And and I thought to myself, you know, I don't really have the answer to that, but I, I'm curious to learn more. And so it started from that place of learning and thinking, you know, if I myself as a pretty educated person don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be in a treaty relation, then there might be some value in writing a book like this that could hopefully be useful for educating um, people of different, you know, backgrounds, whether it's in the kind of university undergrad setting or, or grad school or, or beyond, but trying to really raise awareness about the importance of treaties. I really feel like that's a big contribution of this work to contribute to an ongoing dialogue and discussion. Um, certainly when I was in you know, elementary school or high school, I would have thought of treaties as just archival materials or documents or contracts, mm -hmm. but I, I wouldn't have had an understanding of them as these ongoing living relationships. So I've noticed there's a lot of other Indigenous artists and scholars very much calling attention to these, um, the liveliness of treaties. And I think of Amy Kraft's work, who's an Anishinaabe legal scholar at the University of Ottawa, whose work is so inspiring to me in this respect. And I, I quote, her work quite a bit in the book and also noticed that with the David Suzuki Foundation, um, she's co-created some videos on treaties recently, just this past month, actually in June, I believe they came out. And so I'll be bringing these mm -hmm. resources into my teaching in the fall. Um, and I know here in, um, in British Columbia, it's interesting to reflect on treaties too, because um, treaties are constantly being renegotiated and some colleagues from Indigenous governance who I've spoken with who have, you know, worked in the treaty 
context in British Columbia are very skeptical of of the treaty process. And I think that's because it often comes from the kind of colonial Western mindset. Mm -hmm. And so there's still a lot of uh, improvements to be made in terms of reframing how we think about treaties as these, you know, ongoing living reciprocal relationships with more than human worlds. And I think it's, it's that, that component, that living part that a lot of Canadians and settler governments have a hard time kind of enacting. And so I, I do hope that this work can contribute to that reframing and that revitalizing of, of treaties and um, yeah, try to also work towards, you know, building better relationships. I think that's part of it, relationships with um, communities, relationships between governments, relationships between researchers, relationships with environment broadly speaking i think that's also really at the core of this work mm-hmm. too and like clearly you were changed by your relationship with Teresa spence herself like you note that uh you were inspired to write and share her story with her permission uh but what you say is that it was really her calling you to action that got things moving like got you thinking about building relationships that could sort of form enough momentum to contribute to this larger effort of calling into question, as you write, the state's hierarchical imposed top-down authority and decision-making. Um, I want to like eventually get to some of the ways you talk about subverting, like I read it as a matter of subverting traditional policy-making processes. Uh, but for now, like I guess I wanted you to maybe talk a bit more about the things that Spence taught you about treaty. Like you say that in the book, you know, treaties tend to be poorly understood as maybe these archival documents, uh, but there were things you learned in terms of what treaty is from Spence, specifically, like, I guess, in legal terms on the one level, but also just like in human terms. And you also learned, in a sense, when treaty is in terms of its like temporality or futurity, you know, like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a little bit messy, but did you did you want to speak at all about that? <laughs> yeah, one thing she said to me often was, you are a treaty too. And I, I didn't really know what that meant at first. You know, what does that mean? And, and she was really trying to convey to me that I have treaty responsibilities. So, you know, in working with her and her community and sharing her story, um, that I really need to think about, you know, my audience, the goals of this work, what it's contributing to. And she really did shape the future direction of the book because initially I just wanted to do sort of a critical discourse analysis and look at media coverage and kind of get her story. But then she said, it's really important that you kind of give something of yourself to the community. And so um, she wanted me and really encouraged me to work with youth and young people and young artists in the community and do kind of workshops and and support them with sharing their stories and their voices and so that that was interesting too to really think about what it means to not just be you know an extractive researcher not just come take a story leave and write about it but actually contribute your skills your experiences your knowledge and and share that with community in kind of an ongoing iterative way and and she really helped me think through what that looks like in practice um Mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I wasn't initially planning to do kind of youth-focused uh, mixed-media storytelling workshops, um, but that came directly out of uh, connections with the art class there, the senior art class, and um, 
the young people's kind of desire to engage in this reframing of Attawapiskat collectively. Uh, and some of the images are on, on our website, the Reimagining Attawapiskat website. Um, and then, yeah, connecting it back to treaty, um, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned is about how it's, it's iterative, it's ongoing, it's not just mm-hmm. sort of a sign, sealed, delivered deal. And um, so she was, you know, bringing a treaty lens to those impact benefit agreements, for instance, saying, you know, these these contracts that we sign with these uh, corporations, they shouldn't just be one-time deals. We need to revisit them. And so it's that revisiting, that kind of check-in that that she really drew my attention to and, and wanted me to think more about. Uh, that was that was huge. Um, yeah. So that kind of ongoing relationship being central. Yeah, I mean, um, there's something very appealing to me about this idea of like a more iterative um, idea of treaty. And and that does sort of, yeah, speak to this idea of like the difference between a transactional treaty relation, as you put it, or transformative relations, Um, you know, because an iterative approach is open to what emerges and and certainly like the title concern of much of your work is emergency uh, in multiple different kind of ways, like the declaration of emergency, the persistence of communities through an emergency, uh, the way that power either profits from emergency or largely neglects its effects. You know, the way you theorize emergency has a kind of art to it, I think where you're looking for lenses and terms that are going to give you a purchase on how it's experienced. Uh, One of the recurrent ones is this idea of life on a razor's edge. Uh, And I quote, interstitial existence between hope and despair, survival and crisis. Um, You say that this state of being has a way of honing our perspectives, but I think it can have other less empowering effects too which I'm sure, you know, you're, you're conscious of, but you're, you're sort of trying to land on a metaphor that doesn't um, imagine emergency as this, um, you know, passive place. Is it related at all, like that lens of thinking about uh, emergency as, as kind of life on a razor's edge that kind of sharpens our focus? Is it related at all to some of the other, like, figurative ways that you write about emergency and the act of seeing and witnessing like you know you talk about having a polyphonic or prismatic lens for example um you know how do these terms kind of let you think through life as it's lived in and against states of emergency yeah i keep thinking about the paradox of emergencies and the relationship between state of emergency declarations and and democracy and one example that's ongoing now that comes to mind is in Hawaii, for instance, where the governor has just declared a housing state of emergency and it's making a lot of community organizations and residents and activists quite concerned because on the one hand, there's this rhetorical power and this actually this policy and legislative power of declaring an emergency, Mm -hmm. but it does have democratic implications. So when you declare something like that at that sort of elite executive level, it, it gives sort of centralized authority figures, a lot of power and control to sidestep certain regulations, certain permitting processes, um, certain ways of managing like cultural heritage sites, for instance, or um, uh, speeding up like 
permitting for development. So there's a lot of danger, I think, and and also um, expediting opportunities for public hearings and testimonies. So I, I'm sort of watching these declarations closely um, with a lot of like concern and curiosity um, to see how citizens and activists and communities respond to these events. And um, yeah, I think the next big project that I will focus on is is a broader analysis of different types of state of emergency declarations and and how they relate to affected communities and, and what the sort of democratic implications mm. are um, and then look at different levels of government. And, and you contrast that with a place like Attawapiskat, where this is a, a First Nations, Indigenous nation, declaring state of emergencies again and again and again Mm -hmm. as a signal for other levels of government like federal authorities to kind of step in and live up to treaty relations so it's a really different use of power and a different tactic Um, so i think it is interesting to look at kind of yeah the levers of change and power and um and I, I think my understanding from speaking with Teresa and others is that those declarations, are they feel like a last resort, mm-hmm. actually, to de- declare a state of emergency. Whereas in a place like Hawaii, when the governor declares it, it might feel like a last resort, but it's also this sort of political tool to centralize power. Yeah, I mean, um, to kind of just keep working at understanding the nature of emergency and and, you know, maybe how emergency can mean mobilizing you write in biopolitical disaster about reckoning with climate disasters as things that are kinetic and nonlinear. Like in other words, we can, we can chart global temperature rise, but like we're bad at anticipating impacts clearly because nature is complex. Colonial capitalism is chaotic. So it's very difficult. Um, At the same time, you're trying to stress that, the convergence of movements against emergency is an answer to crises. Um, And so I wondered if you wanted to speak to that at all. I know that's kind of broad, but like, so especially this idea that there are ways that state power is invested in creating policies that explicitly shut down and criminalize the emergence of social movements in the aftermath of specific emergencies, things like bill, bill C 51, for example, you call that bill a tool of biopower. Um, in what sense is it like a tool of biopower? Yeah, there's so much in there in the relationship between these declarations and then kind of the governance and management of certain populations and and, and how control takes shape in these declarations. And interestingly, I presented um, about this work um, on campus and somebody in the audience said, well, I don't really want more democracy during an emergency. I want this sort of executive top-down control because I want the emergency to end. And that's what I think the individual was referring more to say um, something like a wildfire or a flood or a heat dome. You know, we want this kind of centralized, quick, efficient approach Um Whereas I'm really curious about what does it look like to have more citizen involvement and how to manage and respond to these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what's particularly interesting to me is is that sort of the different expectations that we have during times of emergency, but also how the state does have a lot of power to kind of define what what is an emergency, when to call one, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and then the kind of series of 
tools or actions that um, ensue from that. It, it, and when you look at the, the pattern of when governments respond or they don't respond, I think that's also really interesting too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that a place like Attawapiskat is declaring emergency after emergency after emergency is very telling, I think, in biopolitical terms about you know, whose lives are valued in certain ways. And um, that's really troubling because these state of emergencies should be signals. Um, and so it begs the question of like, what does it take to draw attention to certain places? It shouldn't, it shouldn't take, you know, getting to the place of a state of emergency for, you know, our political representatives to respond in, a, in an informed, sensitive, thoughtful way that respects, you know, relationships and, and treaty rights. I completely agree. It should not take that. Um, and it's like, it's interesting just to kind of think about the rise of movements to confront disasters now in relationship to, as you do, like the Oka crisis, for example, in the early 90s in Canada. Um, in Rehearsals for Living, Leanne Betasamo Saki Simpson says that the, the so-called Oka crisis um, transfixed her mind when she was younger because it it felt like the first time that this sort of act of organized indigenous resistance to settler takeover actually entered the media sphere and became an emergency um, for the kind of mainstream. And she relates like a feeling of shock at seeing the standoff repeatedly on the news and how it actually felt naive after the fact to be shocked by it. Um, she says that the framing of it as a crisis rather than a standoff or an act of resistance or an uprising uh, or a movement downplayed the extent to which it was, it was that like it was an uprising and, you know, it sort of like underscores for her basically the double edged nature of spectacle in a sense, like the spectacle of emergency or of disaster or uh, of apocalypse. I mean, the, the climate breakdown feels like we're witnessing the apocalypse for people you know, so like on the one hand, it creates an opportunity to push. It has to. But on the other, it tends to encourage an almost naive relationship to the reality of emergency as it's, as it's experienced. Um, do you have any thoughts on sort of like the power of images here, the role of affect or maybe of art for like reframing that kind of tension between being transfixed by the spectacle of crisis on the one hand and then on the other like being moved to do something by it. It's uh, really fascinating to look at these various events and how they're framed and depicted. Um, and certainly Oka Crisis comes to mind. Another one is Wash, and there are these sure. kind of really high profile moments that um, are shocking. And I'm actually very influenced by the work of Rob Nixon, mm-hmm. who's written about slow violence. And um, I, yeah, I think there is... A danger in terms of always showing certain communities in a certain light and, and what that um, kind of shows about, you know, how we kind of frame, say, Indigenous communities um, in terms of this kind of crisis context. And one of the messages in, in the book is about highlighting certain narratives like the crisis narrative, which is important on the one hand because it draws attention to a place, but sometimes that attention isn't really the kind of attention that the community wants to be known mm-hmm. for or recognized for and so that's a delicate um dance that um i think sort of sensitive journalists and academics and researchers um get involved 
in when we're trying to authentically work with communities to share stories about their lives and places and homes. And I know for the Attawapiskat project, the Reimagining Attawapiskat project, we really, as a team of artists and, and researchers, really want to try to balance the shadows and light. And so whereas the book is much more critical and um, critiques a lot of policy and, and has that sort of like decolonial emphasis, really trying to critique ongoing systems of colonization, the Reimagining Attawapiskat Project attempted to show more of the beauty of the community. And so it's interesting, if you just look at the website, you might not really get a sense of the context. You might not think about things like the 2016 suicide crisis, for instance, or um, some of the other state of emergencies that were declared, because we really wanted to not kind of recenter that crisis narrative, that emergency narrative, but instead show the strength of the youth, the, their connection to home, their connection to place. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, I, I did receive some critiques as well from community members saying, you know, that's only showing one side of the story. You need to show the effects of colonialism too. And mm-hmm. so it is really hard because I, I, I feel like as a settler researcher, as a non-Indigenous researcher, it would be problematic to keep reframing communities as inherently in crisis that's i think that would be perpetuating the problem and so instead there is a need to reframe um and to celebrate like culture and community and and strength and so you don't want to gloss over the colonial legacy and enduring effects Mm -hmm. um but i think that the story can't end there and that's something that i did learn through working with Teresa as well and and sharing her story um, is that she has a lot of, you know, hopes and aspirations for the future of, of her community. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, You know, and maybe we can use that as sort of a way to switch gears slightly and start exploring the stuff you've written um, and put together on art space strategies of political transformation and policymaking. Like, I love the section of Life Against States of Emergency where you talk about how Teresa Spence relates this vision of health and vitality and connection to land that's mediated through drumming, um, you know, the drum beat and the heart of a nation. Uh, the reference to the hallucination is especially powerful to me. And I think a lot of people, you know, that group has been so important as an example of this kind of blend of hip hop, dubstep dance music, and First Nations chanting and drumming. And the power of their music is just undeniable. Um, So I just, you know, I guess on that point, like, have you been in situations where you really feel that thing of drums acting as a kind of vessel or container? Yeah, certainly. Um, In, let's see, I would say the best chapter of the book (laughs) is chapter one, which is the artistic movements for decolonial futures chapter. And initially, that was going to be the conclusion of the book. But uh, my peer reviewers were like, this is the best chapter, you have to (laughs) start. And so I thought, oh, no, that means I have to rewrite the whole Mm -hmm. thing, which I did. I I rewrote the whole book because of that, because once you change the sequence, yeah, it just yeah. kind of changes the narrative arc. And so I thought, oh, no, now if the, the best chapter is at the beginning, I have to try to make the following chapters even better. How am I going to mm. do that? But um, I so I, I do describe um, connecting with uh, a young leader named Jack Linkletter Jr., who's now actually sitting on band council, which is great to see. 
Um, and at the time he was a student in the art class that I was working with and we did a drum making exercise and he was drumming, you know, with us and for us and singing and it was so moving and stirring. It's something you can like feel in your gut, this, this, this pride and connection. Um, and the reimagining Attawapiskat website does have, um, some videos, some digital stories of, of Jack speaking and of his drumming that he wanted to share with us and share more broadly. And, and Jack's words in general are really moving. Um, he, he contributed to the We Matter campaign, which is raising awareness about mental health. Um, and his, his story of hopefulness is on that website as well. Um, another musician who I got to meet was Adrian Sutherland. I uh, had the good fortune of connecting with him initially in Attawapiskat, and then again when he was on tour on the West Coast and followed up with an interview. And um, he reviewed that, that chapter that I, I spoke about, the artistic chapter. And he's writing his own memoir and story now, so I can't wait to read his story. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think music is so powerful. So he's the lead singer of Midnight Shine and tells a lot of stories about um, growing up as a Cree person and living between worlds and raising awareness about youth well-being. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really powerful. Yeah. And like, this is the thing about art. Like it's, it's hard to even name it, right? It just creates excitement. It is, as you say, a connecting force. Um, and while that, for, I think for most folks, is an intuitive thing, um, that is a bit hard to uh, put into words sometimes. What is less intuitive is this idea that art is something that can, as you put it, speak back to policy. You know, and I was hoping you could kind of expand on that slippery <laughs> idea that you do articulate really well in the anthology that you edited with uh, Leah Lebac. Yeah that you know you say an emotive and relational orientation so like that experience of connecting through art music it's not a call to replace technical expertise in policy but to complement it with a commitment to the artful expressions and experiential expertise that emerge from situated bodies of knowledge you know i'm really interested in in what that looks like for you yeah, it's something that I am always seeking examples of are these points of connection between emotive forms of storytelling and narrative and policy transformation. There aren't that many examples, and I um, I can think of a couple, I guess, glimpses into this uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. And one is I was asked to do a presentation about my um, earlier work on um, pollution and chemical valley for policymakers in Toronto and Ontario. And so um, it was this talk that was advertised across the ministry. And I came in and gave a presentation and had lots of stories from community members and music and quotes. And afterwards, there was just no dialogue. There was no Q&A. It was just quiet. And I thought, oh, this is so frustrating because I'm you know here I'm presenting this work and these stories and and there's just lack of connection or lack of knowing what to Mm -hmm. do with that information there was an appreciation you know people showed up they came to listen but then they didn't really know how to um I guess interact with the stories to inform their work and so I I do feel committed to contributing to that because I think there is a disconnect 
connect in language often in terms of like the logic model, formal, top-down modes of policymaking, and then the more emergent forms of expression that come from community mobilization. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there's a challenge there. And another example that comes to mind is like public hearing processes. And so there's a lot of emotion that happens in testimonies. And I think of a lot of examples in Hawaii, for example, um, but then also with the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, mm -hmm. there were a lot of hearings involved. And I know one of the communities that I worked with, um, the Say Out Nation, we, we worked together on a short film. And so they presented that short film as part of their um, Aboriginal oral evidence. And so that's one kind of example of narrative and stories relating to the public policy process. But at the same time, it's not really deliberative because there's not really conversation. You know, the evidence presented and there's note takers listening and then they leave. So I I would rather see something that's more deliberative, sure. like meaningful exchange of information. So I think we need more of these spaces. And there are scholars who have written about sort of like citizens assemblies and deliberative spaces. And um, I think that that is an interesting um, possibility or pathway for rethinking our sort of spaces of deliberation or democratic environments. But um, one scholar that uh, I am inspired by, actually it's a group of scholars who contributed to the Creating Spaces of Engagement collection mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, Alana Katapans, one of the authors, um, in the conclusion of their book or their chapter story, um, they talk about radical policy futures. And I love this idea. It's not really fleshed out in a lot of depth. It just kind of comes up in the conclusion. But in my mind, that involves some kind of exchange, a bit, bit more of like a reciprocal approach to policymaking where there's some give and take between affected communities and decision makers and some kind of learning, listening, learning, and transformation. Mm -hmm. But it's that transformative aspect that is really hard to gauge mm -hmm. and, um, and, and observe. So I'm kind of hopeful for that, but I, I don't have enough examples of it, unfortunately. But this is the value, I think, of, of the you know, writing and thinking that you do. It's like you take a term like biopower, biopolitics, which you know, we're at a point where um, there's this there's this discourse there, right? That biopolitics is about the politics of life itself, as Nicholas Rose would have it, or it's restricted to the state's administering of the health of the the body politic in the kind of classical way Michel Foucault conceived of it. Uh, or it's confined to the kind of necropolitical register that people like Achille Mbembe or um, Giorgio Agamben are, are concerned with, right? You take that and you kind of like imagine resistant strategies coming out of kind of feeling our way through the ways that the body knows the world. And to me, it's like you, you take this discourse that has this kind of academic legitimacy and there's an attempt to... Um, you know, see in it some kind of imminent power of, you know, resistance, opposition, um, which I think is really interesting. And, and, and I think it, it, it's letting in emotion, it's letting in embodiment and interconnection uh, and emergence in these really exciting ways. Um, and it allows us to kind of imagine things like a public hearing or a policy process as situated acts you know, rather than things that are formally detached from the social. So when we talk about the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline or Coastal Gas Link or Alton Gas, 
or any of these massive extractive investments, they are like disembodied, purely economic, you know, reduced to dollars and cents. But people's bodies and, com and communities are materially at stake. It's, you know, how do we think it's possible to sort of remind people of the physical, emotive, relational nature of, you know, something like a process of consultation and deliberation or, or, or you know, ensuring like that sort of in good faith kind of, you know, prior informed consent around these processes. Like it's so hard, it feels to me to move past um, these like purely, as you say, kind of logic based or rational discourses. But, you know, I guess to kind of make it more concrete, like you clearly feel that relying on ideas like social license, for example, it's just amorphous. It doesn't like get us anywhere. It's just not cutting it to describe what, you know, the conflictual spaces where these decisions are being made. Yeah, I don't know if you could expand on on what you were just saying in, in terms of like the physicality or emotive relational nature of something like a public hearing or consultation and deliberation. One of the thinkers who I'm really inspired by is actually Stephanie Fischel, who wrote a book called The Microbial State. And I really appreciate her work and how she elaborates this kind of feminist approach, which is trying to think about agency and reframing and mobilization emergence. Um, to me, that really challenges a lot of the more um, conventional ways of thinking about biopolitics as about kind of management or these strict life and death scenarios. So I, I am certainly a, a more aligned with that kind of feminist orientation, mm -hmm. um, trying to think about these spaces of agency and, and hope and joy and um, beyond that kind of hierarchical expression of power. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I do think like structure of space does have a lot to do with these configurations. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, when I think back to that example of um, like the Kinder Morgan hearing, one of many, but one that took place here in 2014 in Victoria. And just, the, you know, I, there's no way the transcript would have captured the emotion of the room, watching the community kind of um, enter the room dressed in traditional ceremonial attire. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't think that's documented in something like a transcript. And, and you, you can feel the strength of the words that, um, the community members are articulating when they're talking about the value of, you know, marine life to their community and why the increase of tankers would really drastically impact their way of life. Um, so I think there's something about being present and observing and witnessing that is really moving and stirring. And, you know, maybe for me as a teacher, I can take students to more hearings like that and, and incorporate a bit more of that embodied experiential learning so they understand what what these processes feel mm -hmm. like. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm thinking about is how to kind of teach these themes and topics in more embodied experiential ways. Um, but I do think that, yeah, my, my critique is still that these spaces are often really one-sided. It's just, it might be a space of, of listening, but they don't often feel like they're spaces of learning. So rather I would say that they're spaces of hearing because they're called hearings. But I think listening actually would be something more which would imply more of an exchange, more of a discussion. Um, and um, I've often thought of the example um, in Chemical Valley where community members t have taken high-level officials on toxic tours so that you can like go to 
this place and smell the pollution and see the graveyard and hear the sounds of the smokestacks and feel the the heat of the flares. Um, Because that kind of sensory immersion, um, you you can't get it from reading a report. You might see some pictures, but even the pictures can't really do that, that multidimensional justice sensory approach. Uh, I can't really do that justice. So I think that there is something about connecting in person and relating it on that more profound level mm-hmm. that uh, is is central to the kind of transformation I'd like to see. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, I mean, wow, right? Like that that is the kind of thing that can potentially reshape, um, you know, people's experience. It's just, it's, it, it's a method of engagement or a mode of communication, a style of storytelling that resists easy extraction. Um, you know, this is something uh, Max Lee Boron writes about in Pollution is Colonialism, challenging you to read their book in a non-extractive way and admitting that they have that, that tendency as, as a researcher them, themselves. You know, there's a way in which, like, it feels like you're sort of arguing to arguing for seeing um, arts-based, uh, uh, you know, communication methods of engagement as generative in terms of creating better spaces of engagement. Um, you know, how can that sort of um, way of unsettling extractivism allow for, um, yeah, new new styles of political subjectivity, let's say, to emerge? I am really uh, enthusiastic about kind of art and movement and sound. And I think that that means like moving beyond traditional ways of, of learning, of education, um, challenging the kind of siloed bureaucracies that govern a lot of our policy processes um, and and trying to cultivate more meaningful spaces of community engagement, I think based on what I learned from, you know, student, I'm in the School of Public Administration and our students do co-ops. Um, they don't often have a lot of opportunities for like getting out into communities and, and meeting people and building those relationships. So I think a lot of decisions are often made in kind of like boardrooms or um, kind of closed door environments without a lot of interaction. Um, mm-hmm. And so at least through teaching, I do think that's one way that we can cultivate different ways of thinking. Um, and so this fall, I'm teaching uh, one grad course on government and governance and then another special topics course on grounded governance uh, for social justice and change. And both classes will be going out doing some kind of community work days and, and learning from local communities here about um, story and, and indigenous plant relationships. And we'll be doing some active like pulling of weeds. And so I, I think that those kinds of opportunities do help expand perspectives and I know that the students that go through our public admin program they often end up in government positions so I feel a sense of duty to kind of transform their ways of thinking about policy and I'm hopeful that with a bit more kind of multimedia uh, learning you know I'll definitely include podcasts in my curriculum and and other videos um, and then these kind of experiential site visits I'm hopeful that that will at least plant some seeds that they can think about when they're then in these positions of decision making and reporting they'll they'll think back to these more sensory um, practices um, as they're hopefully making more justice oriented decisions that serve the collective good much better than these sort of top-down approaches and processes. Yeah, and just sort of trying to defamiliarize or, or you know, 
shift um, some of these kind of, you know, unquestioned assumptions maybe that people have. And like, you know, I love the um, Edward Said quote that you used at the end of your essay in Biopolitical Disaster, where, you know, he says uh, the more difficult pass, path to consider that stability as a state of emergency uh, threatening the less fortunate with the danger of extinction, right? That stability, the continuation of, of nor normalcy uh, is a worst case scenario for, you know, huge parts of, of um, you know, the, the world, right? Like the, the, and not even just the, the human world, right? The non-human world is in many ways, especially, right? Where um, it is the end of the world for, for many species, uh, you know, trying to take that into account, um, you know, doesn't have to, as Maryam Kava puts it, lead us to despair. It can, it can let us radicalize whole, you know, whole communities. Um, so I think like that's really inspiring, you know, and, and some of the things that you've been talking about, I find really encouraging. So I, I appreciate you making the time. Yeah. Thanks so much for reading so closely and thoughtfully. It's such a pleasure to chat with you about all of these layered, vital, pressing, emergent topics. <laughs>